So I encapsulate it as um, privileged yet captive child bride, Twilight Adams joins the enslaved champions of freedom on an antebellum southern plantation, first confronting her own hypocrisy, then challenging the master. And it's based in 1858, uh, Mystical Sisterhood and Secret Ancestry spur 16-year-old Twilight Adams into marrying a slaveholder to reform his plantation. Instead, she becomes his captive. She has life among the enslaved and a thoughtful friendship with manumented Ember Free, and that teach her that even her bondage is privileged. Then as America splits and plummets towards civil war, Twilight faces threats by relatives, living and dead, becomes aware of nature's lessons, and hears the elusive voice urging her to challenge oppression. But there are secrets that loom, endangering her life, and it's actually the enslaved community with brave and subtle acts of resistance through stories, songs, dances, resilience, and resourcefulness that inspires her to craft a purposeful life within her captivity to salvage a lost love, and ultimately to realize that in order to save her life, she must risk her life. And so the last three things I want to say about it is it is historical fiction. It's very deeply researched, but it's also it's steeped in the heated tensions of Annabella America. It's sprinkled with magical realism, and it's laced with Southern goth. It's gothic. So meaning that those aren't heavy aspects in it, the magical realism and the Southern gothic, but they are there. Okay. And I wondered why you picked that time, why you picked to go back to that time, because it probably did take a lot of research and a lot of work to take us back so long. Yes. So one thing about doing historical fiction is it is a lot of research, but it kind of makes me feel like time travel. And I did want to know. I, I couldn't understand how anyone in our country, our country, our land of equality, could think for even one second that it was okay to enslave someone. So I wanted to find out about this type of thinking and this kind of foundational aspect of our economy, our, you know, our, our country, even though we are really supposed to be standing for other things. And so going back and doing the research about that, I was able to learn a lot and I wanted to have a strong female character because there haven't, when I was growing up, there wasn't really strong female protagonists in literature. We had, interestingly, The Wizard of Oz and Gone with the Wind both came out as films in 1939. And even though Dorothy is a strong female in ways, not really enough in her story fantasy. And then we have this historical story about our country. And so here we have this strong woman acclaimed in literature and film, Scarlett O'Hara and Gone with the Wind. And I was always unimpressed by her. I mean, she drew her strength from selfishness and within a racism. And now we do have a lot more female protagonists, but I began this novel a long time ago, and I really wanted, I looked into the women of Annabella America who believed in equal rights for all and did something about it. And there are several, white and black, and women of all races and ethnicities throughout our history. And in my story, these strong, determined, benevolent women take the form of my protagonist, who's 16-year-old Twilight Adams. Also, her beloved and deceased abolitionist grandmama, yeah. and then the manumented Ember Free, and several of the enslaved, um, who are mostly women. 
tell me a little bit about your background. I know that you're a teacher, and that's all I know. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, I'll say another aspect about how I came to this story, and this story starts in Memphis, and then it will mostly end in Evansville, Indiana, where I grew up. Many years ago in southern Indiana, I had attended a church. The membership was mostly African-American, and when I asked a friend where she was going on vacation, she said to slave quarters and other places in the south where she might find records about her ancestors. And her answer hit me profoundly because that would never be a place I would look for my information about my ancestors. And in that, in the substantial ways in our country, I knew that my life was different than hers. My understanding of my privileges started to expand then. So I am a white female and have a lot of, you know, privileges that come along with that. And then I did pursue my PhD, and after I obtained that, I came to New Mexico, and for the last 20 years, I've been a professor, now a professor of English at New Mexico Tech, and there I teach art history, I teach literature, I teach creative writing, I also teach a course called Film and Social Issues, and it seems to me that my students are largely unaware of the beginnings in our country of of white privilege. Uh, they're largely unaware of the history of, of white privilege and of the marginalization of women. And so as, as a white person, I must be vigilant in seeing my privilege, as well as the intersectional discrimination of others that I don't experience, and also attentive to using my privilege for social change towards equality and against injustice and racism. And this is my protagonist calling. She sees her birth advantages and her hypocrisy which intensifies into a purpose when she discovers startling and precious truths about her matrilineal descent. So my history definitely, you know, is tied up in ways that me learning about my privileges is certainly tied up in what my protagonist is going to be learning as well. And did you hesitate at all as a white woman to go back to that period and to be the person who's illuminating it for others? Did you think about your privilege and oh, whether you should attack that subject? Well, um, I feel as though I feel as though that I need to be speaking out about basically the the process of becoming aware of one's privilege. Mm -hmm. And so I also want to, it's what I call news stories. I am not going about this in the way that I have seen it done by white people possibly before. I've been very attentive to the stereotypes. I've done a lot of research, and one book that's really been helpful to me is called Enslaved Women and the Art of Resistance in Annabellum America by Renee K. Harrison. And I mean, there's been many, but that one really gave me a lot of insights into what the enslaved women did in order to show some resistance in the best way that they could. And so I see that this is a way to help others as it's helped me to 
see the privileges that maybe we don't see that aren't as obvious. I mean, we definitely have a lot going on now, which is great to help people see when they have privileges that they might not have considered. They might have thought the word privilege was based in the idea of possibly economics and money rather than the idea of what it means to be white in this country and how many privileges you have with that. So the fact that all of that is very present now is great. And I feel as though that's what I'm doing with my novel is bringing a lot of that and also the historical basis of how the politicians and what they were talking about at that time. You know, there's some of that in there during like suppertime conversations. They called it supper back then, like suppertime conversations and mm-hmm. things like that that would come up. And so you feel that you can bring a different or a new point of view in looking at some of the subjects that have been looked at before? Well, yes, I do. And that is because I'm being very conscious about that and very meticulous in looking at how to do that. And so, for example, one way that I'm doing it, when we think about what I call news stories, we might think, oh, like, what, what can you mean? Like, every story's been told or whatever. Yes, exactly. What could yeah. you do? <laughs> but I am a professor of English. I am a poet, a published poet. I absolutely love language. So one of the ways that we can go about creating new stories is to use language in different ways. And so, for example, in my story, only the people who want slavery use the word slaves. The abolitionists or the people who are against slavery use the word enslaved, the enslaved, or the enslaved people, or the captives. And that's because, to me, using the word slave is an identity aspect, not a condition. And actually, it was a condition that was forced on the people. And the the condition is to be enslaved. And that's not an identity to be a slave. It was forced upon them. And so rather than perpetuate the idea that, oh, that that you were a slave, it's a nudge to say, okay, no, you were an enslaved person. Why were you enslaved? Because our country allowed that, because people wanted that. So that's one example. Another is freedom champions. So in my story, the people who try to get away from their captivity on plantations are called freedom champions instead of freedom seekers, which is what we often see, or runaways. Runaway means that's from the viewpoint of the plantation owner, you know, that they're a runaway. They are freedom champion because they, even if they don't make it, they tried. They were the ones who were being champions for the freedom, for their people and for for all. And seeking, they were usually called freedom seekers, but they're seeking freedom. Again, that doesn't give them, in my opinion, a strong enough, they risk their lives. And so they are freedom champions, whether they made it or not. You know, just the fact that they were attempting it and trying to do it. And then another thing that I do is I'm using the terms skin tone instead of skin color because It's tones of, you know, I mean, biologically speaking, there's tones that we have in our skin. And so I'm not using the words 
white and black or any of the related terms, except occasionally if I'm directly quoting something that might have used a term such as Negro, then there's a rare use of that because it's a direct quote like out of a newspaper or something where they might have said Negro. But I'm instead using rich tone. So the rich tone people, because the tone in their skin is a rich tone, and then the people who don't have as rich tones are pale, and they're pale and privileged. And so pale tone or faded tone and rich tone. And again, these are ways to, and again, I'm using tone demarcation instead of racial demarcation. Race is really a construct to control at this point, you know, and so the idea that it's based again on, on the tone of, of someone's skin. So to me, that's a way of telling a new story because we can then think about the things that we've heard over and over and over and over and over start to become ingrained in a way. It's like, oh, we just use that word. And then it's like, well, wait a minute, maybe we need to really think about what these words mean. And so it's just a way of doing that, of saying, hmm, maybe I need to think about that. There's connotations that go with the word white and the word black. And so if we just take those away, and actually the term rich tone is a very, I think, beautiful term. And pale may not sound as great. And in, you know, (laughs) in in my novel, yeah, in my novel, so it's kind of a flip. And in my novel, they, they accept this. People are saying this. Because the pale people still have the privilege. So in their minds, it really doesn't matter. But what it does is takes away those connotations that we've, as a culture, attached to some of those words because they're new words. So that's one of the aspects I'm thinking about when we say new stories. It's time for new stories. I'm not saying everyone needs to adopt these terms. (laughs) It's just in my story, a way to think about things in a new way, yeah. Okay, so that becomes clear that you want people to stop and think. It's not so much you want to change the language, but you want right. them to stop and think. And, yes. And you bring your readers into a sort of different world with the story as it unfolds and some mystery in the story. And so it's an experience that you want them to have. Yes, absolutely. Right. And I think you had mentioned to me before we started talking something about how I'm actually, even in my my pre-order campaign, kind of giving this experience to people who pre-order. Yes. I I wanted to talk about how you're doing that and also how you're relating to your readers. So in my pre-order campaign, basically with my publisher, Ink Shares, they're a fairly new small publisher. And as we know, with publishing and many businesses, they're they're trying new things, being innovative, so that we can continue to have things, you know, published. So they run a pre-order campaign that's a little bit like crowdfunding. We have to get, the authors have to get so many pre-orders, and then it goes into production. They edit, and they design, and distribute to the bookstores, and so forth. So in my pre-order campaign, my third chapter is a letter from Grandmama, Twilight's Grandmama. So the first two chapters you can read on my Inkshares webpage, and it starts out, the very beginning of it is Twilight opening this letter that has been sealed and waiting for her from her grandmama, and she opens that on her 16th birthday. Something in this letter changes how she 
feels about things and then sets her off and, and she goes off. So you can read that. Then something else happens in chapter two. Then chapter three, she reads the letter again. And with this, we all get to read the letter. So when the book's published, that'll be chapter three. But what I wanted to do was because I have the first two chapters posted on my page on Inkshares, I wanted for everyone who pre-orders to get that letter as the actual letter. There's a seal that's important, and I had this seal made, and it's now my logo, uh, the doe in the tree, and there's a woman in the tree. So I print the letter off. It looks like handwriting from Grandmama. I seal it with the seal. If you read Chapter 1, you'll see there's actually even something tucked inside the letter that Grandmama left her. And I send that to everyone. And so what's been really fun about this process is it's actually a very time-consuming process. But I revised the letter so many times once I realized I was going to print it and send it out to people. I wanted it right. And so I revised and revised and revised. And then when I decided something needed to be in there, I now I'm kind of like adding aspects to the story. So this has, yes, I want to give people something tangible and the actual letter from Grandmama, so to speak, to make them feel as though they're actually doing what Twilight did and they're actually in this novel because they won't get it for a little while, maybe a year. I mean, it needs to be still published after it gets... And also that letter is kind of the uh, crux of everything. It's It really is a point where you find out a lot and hopefully will maintain the interest for people. So it's been fun for me to actually create this letter. It's made me think about the novel in different ways. It's been a very kind of give and take. It's like, oh, uh, I don't really want this part, or now I want this, or now I want to add this. It's made it very tangible. To oh, So as you said, yeah, yeah. It may continue as a work for you. <laughs> yes, yes, exactly. Yeah, I might be something that even when the book's published, if people really want the letter from Grandmama, I'll send it to them with the seal on it. <laughs> well, let's talk a little bit about women, because that is something that's important in your book. And, of course, it's important to our listeners. Yes. I guess how you came to focus on, on women. Um, I... As I was saying earlier, I really was looking for a strong female character because we have them in our culture who is benevolent and believes in wanting to learn and wanting to do the right things in life. That doesn't mean she doesn't make a bunch of mistakes along the way trying to do that, but she, but she's doing what she can and trying and learning. But also I believe in female solidarity. And to me, this idea of sisterhood is is very important. I actually don't have any actual sisters myself, but my mother and I were very close. My mother had an uncanny spirituality, even though she wouldn't really claim that. Uh, I was very love my grandma, my grandmothers a lot, and I just like this idea of women creating their story who have a community that isn't scratched out of a framework of the society that's been created by men. And so, again, something new that way. And what I mean by that is, again, loving language, there's ways we can choose words that 
So, for example, somebody might say they're combating an illness. To me, that feels like a very male-centered term. I would say trying to heal the illness. And that, to me, feels much more like female-centered language. And so we don't really even know in ways what things would be if many of our words had been chosen by women because it's been, you know, it's been dominated by men, our culture, the literature and everything. And so in in my story, well, Twilight definitely has a lot of problems with a lot of women. I mean, there's a lot of women who don't like what she's doing at all. So, but she does have a strong sense that women have a solidarity between them. She had a very great relationship with her grandmama, but not with her mother. Her grandmama raised her. Her mother didn't want to. And so it's it's not an obvious, strong, big community. It's more, I want the novel to be very realistic, the way that we actually do experience our culture with some ideas about things that maybe we're just could recognize a little bit more. So there's not this huge, like, group of women that all get together. I mean, her grandmama did go to Seneca Falls, but I don't write it. She just knows about that. That's not in the story. But instead, it's more like they have to kind of bump into each other spiritually in a way or emotionally and kind of find out who among the women are women who are open to a new way of thinking about things and not just following along with the way the hegemony has been set by, you know, the, the male-dominated culture. And I'm talking to Mary December, and the name of the book is Wild Conviction. Give the publisher again so that people can go to the website. Yeah, thank you. It's InkShares. It's spelled I-N-K-S-H-A-R-E-S dot com, so InkShares. Okay, and you had a, a passage or so that you thought would be interesting to our listeners that centers on the focus on women for, for the book. Yes, I have several, but this is my favorite passage. <clears throat> and in this one, uh, Twilight is an outsider, and she has been in the parlor uh, listening to the hit or, or humming, I'm sorry, not listening to because they couldn't do that in that day, but humming the hit of the day, which was Stephen Foster's genie with the light brown hair. So when you have that in your mind, how that song goes. So we have this, you know, American song, genie with the light brown hair. She leaves the, the parlor in the mansion. And so I'm going to uh, pick up there. She decided to walk a bit more before returning to the mansion. The moon was so bright she blew out her lantern. In the cool evening, she wrapped her shawl over her head and across her mouth. Only her eyes peered out. She must do something about how inadequately dressed the captives were for the chill in the night. She walked further into the trees near the river, and then she saw firelight. About twenty feet away, a circle of women and girls were gathered around the fire. They didn't notice their observer hidden by the trees. Women and girls were chanting in hypnotic, magnetic tones. Women and girls were dancing in ways Twilight had never seen anyone dance, with a freedom of the self 
as if releasing their bodies from bending all day, as if releasing their bodies from being enslaved. Exuberantly, women and girls danced, their bodies becoming a celebration. Thrilling music, drums with deep beats and gourds with shimmering sounds, rose up around them as the fire rose up in the heart of their vibrant circle. Instinctively, Twilight's foot tapped and her torso swayed. Hearing and feeling this music rushed her away into a new exhilaration. In her life, while singing could be heard at any time, instrumental music was rare. Stringed instruments and a piano in the homes of those who could afford them, some stringed and wind instruments and the piano at the dances, and the organ at the Episcopal Church. But this, this music, with its repetitious beats and rich rhythms, shot her soul into the sky as if she were made of fireworks. Ecstasy engulfed her. In their captivity that could be seen as only a living hell, the dancing, singing, shaking, and drumming women and girls created a numinous threshold and, at least for a while, crossed over it and set themselves free. Well, that's quite moving. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks. Inspiring. <laughs> Would it be okay, okay if I read one final small passage? Sure. Okay. Sure. Go ahead. Thank you. In the garden, Ember found what she was looking for, a piece of twisted root from the black walnut tree that Jessie had told her they'd cut down a few years before. Around the stump, a small root peeked through the ground. It was dry and, with a rock, Ember could break it into the piece she wanted. Black walnut was perfect. She knew why the tree had been cut down without Jessie telling her the reason. While the wood of the tree was beautiful and its nuts delicious, its roots were powerful, halting the intrusion of plants that grew too near. Black walnut protected itself. Carefully, she dusted the dirt from the root that, though twisted nearly in a knot, also rather resembled a heart. She threaded a soft piece of twine through one of its spaces, then tied it around her neck. She touched where the root lay. Perfect. Right at the base of her throat, where speech began. She would send this to Twilight with a letter she had written by herself. Ember removed the amulet necklace and slipped it into her pocket, thinking of this gift for Twilight and also of her gift to herself, her growing ability to read and write. By learning to read and write, she knew she had found the key that could unlock all locks, even and especially the ones in her own mind. Oh, that's very nice. I agree. That's a, a nice addition. So thank, thank you very you. much. Thank you, Susan. And again, I'm talking to Mary December, and the name of the book is Wild Conviction, and it's quite an experience. It's more <laughs> of an experience than a read. It's been an honor to be on your show, Susan, on Women's Focus. Thank you so much. Oh, well, thank you. The name of the book is Wild Conviction, and it's quite an experience.